This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group, the global PR, content and business development specialist that builds a reputation and growth for companies in media, marketing, retail and technology. I'm Martin Lote, founder of Propeller and curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, we invite a business leader with something to say into our kennel for a chat. We ask them to dig up something a bit tasty for us to chew on. My guest today is one of the leading analysts in the world of TV, media and telecoms. She's also a passionate advocate of public service broadcasting, defender of the BBC licence fee and a supporter of creative industries and charitable causes. Claire Enders founded her eponymous firm some 25 years ago, and today Enders Analysis enjoys a position as the de facto research arm of the media and telecom sector, doing the heavy lifting analysis for the bosses who make the big calls. The firm produces so many reports, in fact, that some call it endless analysis. Its devoted subscriber base includes the BBC, ITV, Sky, Google, Vivendi, Virgin Media 2 and Ofcom, to name a few, and the CEOs of these giants are all happy to show up each year at the annual Media Telecoms Beyond Conference that Enders jointly runs with consulting firm Deloitte. And after one enforced year in cyberspace, the conference is back as a physical event this year, Thursday 12th of May being the date. Claire, welcome to our Dog and Bone podcast. Hi. So are you all ready for the conference this year? Yeah, I think we're expecting around 500 people, 500 guests, um, hoping for a really extraordinary response. We're not doing any digital wrap. People have to show up and be part of it. We're going to have an amazing array of speakers. We have more speakers than ever before. Many of them, uh, obviously, from the huge range of, of, of companies that span our own subscription base, but, but others as well, talking about a whole range of topics from whether the metaverse to uh, nonlinear and, and whether and how fast that's going. Uh, to some of the telco uh, and infrastructure developments. And, and of course, uh, we're also going to be covering how the TMT industry is advancing towards the goals of being um, carbon zero by 2030. It certainly is an impressive lineup of speakers. Is there anybody who is, is missing? Is anyone you want to be there who can't show up? There's so many people I would love to have at that conference, but either they've been or we're inviting them and they can't make it because they have many other commitments. I mean, this is a time of enormous explosion in travel and meetings. Uh, we've, we've, we've had people we'd asked who were going to go to Australia to see their colleagues for the first time, uh, to Hong Kong, and so on and so forth. So I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly excited that everyone is exploding with energy and activity while we can. And, and obviously, you know, we made our plans before the Ukraine uh, crisis, now war, uh, uh, people are trying to get an enormous amount of business done uh, before the recession hits um, at the end of, of, of this quarter or, or the beginning of the next. Our industries are remarkably resilient and they turn very, very fast. But uh, dealing with this recession, and indeed you mentioned the numbers coming from California, all showing a pattern of very, very fast reduction in advertising across the piece, affecting uh, all the companies in our sector. And we'll see that gather storm. So so yes, I mean I mean it's the, the the trouble with my conference is simply that it's it's we've been spending all our time revising our numbers. Yeah. And 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 we'll have something incredibly fresh and incredibly exciting for the conference, but unfortunately uh, as someone who's a forecaster when you start to say to people, well, there's a 10-year 
conflict, a 10-year permanent increase in the cost of energy. And, and you're saying that like right, left and centre very, very, very fast, putting it out as fast as you can so people can take material decisions in their businesses. And so far, the over many crises and over 40 years of professional activity, um, this way of of our business establishment reacting to crises is something that has made it very resilient and, and very innovative. And the networking of all insight, all innovations, all ideas, all solutions, um, as fast as possible is something that we, we aid and abet. You know, we're, we're, we're not looking for um, amazing insights that you could really pick up better from the results or, or something like that. We're looking for debate, for freshness, for spark. So we've set it up all as panels with only a few, um, you know, really only only one or two speeches. And, and, and those are required, you know, by our regulator, for instance, um, Dame Melanie Dawes. We, 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 we let her do a proper speech, but everybody else is going to be in, in a debate, in a panel, in, in a Q&A, because that's what people want out of these events. They want that freshness. Uh, okay. The information flows that you have to keep up with is in, in this world are so great that that um, uh, my company and, and we're, we're going through 20 publications every day, and those are the main ones, you know, the Wall Street Journals, the Bloombergs, the Reuters, the FTs, um, the Times, and so on. Uh, and, and then we've got all of the professional journals as well. I mean, anyone who wants to keep up in our industry isn't going to go to a conference to do that. But no. to meet people, new people, and to have new ideas, well, absolutely, you need human friction. But you explain, you were talking about all the... Um publications you have to read so just explain to us a little bit exactly how Enders analysis works and how you balance providing the paid for subscription services with some of the more benevolent good causes that you support so I own 100% of my activity and always have and I've I felt that that was the right approach because of my value system and the fact that I don't expect anyone else to support all of my causes or to have my own ideas but I started my activity to have absolute intellectual freedom. And so a subscription business that is supported uh, so well by so many companies that so appreciate our approach um, over the last 26 years of our activity, it's been, it's been wonderful. I've, I've benefited from incredible uh, financial support, moral support, strategic support, um, from a whole range of remarkable people. So uh, we're obviously reliant on, on around 200 companies to support our work, um, and, 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 and we're obviously very interested in access. We do not protect our work. We, we want it to be distributed by people. We want it to be forwarded. I think the record for a forward is 1,600 forwards of one piece, uh, that was to, uh, yeah, I think that was uh, a piece that we did on, on a tech topic that went to, to, to vast numbers of readers in that tech company uh, around the world. Uh, but, 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 but many others will forward our work to 800 people. Um, I think my, my, my really top score, though, is in the five concerts that I've actually produced throughout this lockdown with Mari Samuelson featuring the work of Max Richter, the, the last concert was streamed 20,000 times. And that's so many more people than would ever have seen that work at the Barbican or, or in any hall or something. And, and, and that's very exciting. So I'm very interested in increasing access. We distribute our work for free to the world's media, to the world's business schools, to the RTS, 
to uh, any number of, of uh, organizations, uh, any NGO that wants our work uh, will get it. Um, any student who asks us will get our work. So we're, we're really interested in everyone in the academic fields being on top of our work, using our work as much as they want and as they wish. And we certainly don't want any, any accreditation if, if they use it. That's just great. The most important thing is to get the analysis out there very, very quickly and for it to enrich the lives of the people who are reading it. And it, I designed it a long time ago really based on a business school education. I, I really benefited more than anything from going to the London Business School when I was 23. And I love that approach. I still work professionally with Paddy Barwise, Professor Paddy Barwise, um, whom I encountered in 1982. Um, and I would say that that approach was one of the most brilliant approaches. He and Andrew Ehrenberg pioneered uh, audience measurement. Many of the data techniques that we use really originated in the UK. They're powered by British minds that we hire from amazing British universities that we train. We have a, an approach. And then across our colleagues, we encourage specialization, expertise, the development of a voice. We train uh, 22-year-olds who come to us are immediately trained in how to speak on the radio. We expect them to be hitting radio stations, press, and so on, and to know exactly what they're doing probably within a year of joining my company. Uh, we, that The reason why we have to train them so fast is because so many of them then are encouraged by us to go to business school, to go on to do graduate degrees, so we know how long we're going to have them. And, of course, we know that they're going to go on to great things. Um, so, so we're very, very keen on agency, autonomy, independence, a freedom of thought. We ask people to come up with their own ideas. We also then talk about all kinds of things. So I'm, I'm, I benefit from this immense palimpsest of activity and intelligence by these very, very gifted people, these 30 very gifted people. And, and somehow or other, they figured out exactly how I, I'm a very visual person. I, I love very, very data-rich charts. I have to explain things to people who, who may not know anything about a topic in the House of Lords, in the House of Commons. Uh, I have to explain things to people who know much more about something than I do. And, and then I have to go and talk to, to all these chief executives who, who may have only their own silo that they fully master. So I'm, I'm working across a whole range of things um, as best I can. But, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that I, I, I have a phenomenal memory. Um, and, and also I adore... Uh, the truth. I adore the hypothesis that we're getting to that you can call this current truth, even if I have to res ask to revise all the models again because of, of, of this crisis, of this conflict, of, of how it's looking. It's, it's actually very, very exciting work to do every day. And it's been like that forever. I noticed watching your submission to the House of Lords recently. Yes, you, you, you are a visual person. You were reaching for the uh, for your slides when you were when you were talking to the the barons and the lords, which I thought was a nice touch. I don't know whether they had them all in front of them. But um, in terms of your... Uh, you've explained a little bit how you work, which is, is, is fascinating to hear, but you're a keen uh, advocate for public service broadcasting. How does that... How do you find that sits? Because you must have so many clients or people in your in your universe who are do not have a public service broadcasting uh, component, streamers, digital players, and so on. Does what you say about public service broadcasting help them or do they not want to hear that message and want to move on to different kinds of models? So actually, 
Since 1984, when I was at the London Business School, um, Professor Barwise has been working on the defence of the BBC and indeed looking into the different ways of supporting the BBC because it really is since 1984 that the, that the debate about whether the BBC should be funded by subscription or by advertising or something else, but the licence fee has been going. And all of my professional work has been around modelling what is going on, what is going to happen. I have always been in a position to see further than anyone else what was going to happen to consumption. But even before that, I was extremely familiar with all these issues. I've always spent time thinking about what would be right for the consumer. I'm an immigrant here. I'm someone who's chosen to be British and to, chosen to love these institutions. And the single most important thing that convinced me about becoming British and staying here was Professor Barwise's work on how it was that plurality and impartiality worked to support democracy. When you explain these ideas to people, they suddenly realize how democracy works and why it's important to have freely accessible, universally accessible, high-quality public goods and information and news and also entertainment in my country, this country, the UK, but also for all of that quality to be expressed in the world. So if you look at the work we do, it covers all the industries and supports all the industries that are so material to that British voice in the world. We're talking about the major publications, The Guardian, The Financial Times, The Economist, these Le Monde. I mean, we are, we are ready to help any enterprise that is supporting plurality and impartiality. I will give as much of my time to The Sun not quite as much of my time to the sun, but I will give my time to the sun with the same willingness as I have given it to the BBC. But the BBC has a different role to play in the world. It really is the underpinning of a global access to free, high-quality analysis and information. And, and the impartiality of it is something I would, I would absolutely defend to my last breath. So uh, do you give a, a perhaps a wry smile to the recent downturn in, in Netflix's numbers? Um, because they were on the streamers were on a on a roll up until recently, um, but they don't have a public service component. But they're taking away eyeballs and minutes watching from the regular households up and down the land. So do you uh, do you regard their slight pullback recently as uh, a good news? No, actually, I wish I wish no ill on on any company, and I think that uh, a drop in a share price is of no consequence in a world where tens of thousands of people have died in the last several weeks alone. I, I just think it's of no consequence at all. Um, and uh, for I, I just there, there's no comparison with the impact that uh, the geopolitical crisis is having on every single one of the human beings on this planet, whether they're oligarchs or dirt poor, 8 billion people are affected by this conflict and will be for the next 10 years. The way the share prices are reacting to that, it is as it is. Um, no, I think that what has been very clear is that despite the tsunami of expenditure by the streamers, which actually is close to $200 billion spent on original material in the last 10 years, Netflix spending $85 billion of it alone, actually the public service broadcasters with this incredibly distinctive British material, this desire and need to innovate. And we also, you know, Let's not forget, there are other major, major forces in the UK that have been here for a long time. Sky is a very, very significant, very in-depth force. 
It's very, very important. It is by far the biggest media company in the UK, and it has emerged as the tent under which shelter the public service broadcasters in the last eight years, um, something which has immensely assisted the survival of public service broadcasting and will continue to do so. So there have been many, many changes along the way. And, and people have settled scores, made friends, created partnerships. And what we now see today in the UK is, is of course, the most dynamic, the most competitive uh, uh, video uh, at, at, and also print marketplace in the world. I mean, in the last two years, we've seen a two million increase in the number of subscription of very high quality publications, the Telegraph, the FT, the Economist and so on. Many people around the world are re reading British Genius in a way they weren't before because of our authority and our way of doing things. Of course, our biggest market is the UK because in the UK there are people who, who, who are passionate and, and absolutely gripped by a desire to think anew. There are many countries where that doesn't happen. Of course, many countries without the depth of understanding of our language and of our tools and, 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 and methods. But, but the UK invented evidence-based approaches to complex problems. And I think we, we, we still lead the world in, in how to do that. And I think the best thing about my business is, is that the readers of our work are just as clever as we are. That's a nice note to move it on. And you mentioned Sky there. I think what we'll do, as we often do on the Dog and Bone podcast now, is to start to take some questions that we've had sent in on audio clips from people who know you, Claire, people who've worked with you. And I think the first question we're going to hear is actually from Stephen Van Royen from Sky. Hi, it's Stephen Van Royen from Sky. I am EVP and CEO of Sky in the UK and in Europe. And my question for Claire is, given the context uh, of the changes we've seen recently, both in the value of streaming businesses, uh, as well as uh, telco businesses operating in the TV uh, space across Europe, uh, I just wondered what your view was on uh, Sky, Sky's performance over the last number of years uh, and your prospect uh, for the business. I know you've long followed our organization uh, and our journey, and I'd just be curious to hear your views uh, on how you think uh, we're progressing and where we go from here. Thanks. That's a, a really interesting question because, in fact, I was at the inception of Sky in 1989. So I have followed the business for a very, very long time. Sky is a business that has emerged from a number of different models into really what I would call the leading technology video experience that the UK can provide. And as a result, you know, it is our biggest media business, one of our biggest telco businesses as well. But it, it, it is a company that has gone from being a one product, sort of one trick pony around sports at its inception with American material bolted on to being the company actually that has the deepest relationship with the UK, the deepest relationship with British households. It has an incredible data wrap. Um, it sells myriad of products to myriads of customers in really dynamic ways. Um, in the FT, I called Skyglass, the product that uh, Dana Strong announced um, last November, um, Sky's um, iPhone moment, um, because I thought it was really the epitome of the acumen, the design, the marketing, the ability to land an incredible product that is an investment in the next 10 years of experience. 
I think we've seen that time and time again with Sky in 2005. It invested for the first time in a telecom business. Uh, today, that telecom business is one of the most significant businesses in the world. It, it, it builds organically. It has never needed to acquire. It has been acquired, but it has been acquired by a parent that has incredible resources, um, is one of the leading companies in the USA itself, uh, the leading market for video in the world. It, it has incredible strength in the UK, and and it is still trying to 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 put that model uh, in in place in Germany and Italy, which which I've been obviously less enthusiastic about for a very long time because of course those markets don't have the same innovative behaviors, unbelievably uh, alert customers, very willing customers to try things. Um, uh, that that we have in the UK, and also of course we we have we have we have a much higher expenditure. We have twice the expenditure uh, that 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 France has Claire, on creative products. Is, is that cause and effect? You mentioned Germany, Italy, um, not having our appetite for new creative services. Is that because they don't have the equivalent of uh, the BBC? Well, they have they have their own public service components. But what what's the reason for why you feel that other countries in Europe? Uh, can't match Britain for that creative appetite. So, <clears throat> I don't. I, I I've lived in many of these countries, and I actually speak three three languages. And and I consider myself someone who's really syncretic. Uh, being the daughter of a diplomat, I think I'm going to be polite. I think the UK has always been at the cutting edge of the world in design, in advertising, in marketing, in the creation of programs, in the creation of advertising, in the creation of books. I mean. We have just have a stonking creative ecology. There's no other place on earth I would prefer to live than this wonderful country. So our creative industries are, are the strongest in Europe by a considerable... So Germany is much bigger country than us, but our creative industries are much greater than theirs. Obviously, we bask in the benefits of the English language, but it's, it's about irreverence. It's about a desire to laugh, to upend the world, to revolutionize it. These are not features of countries on the continent. They play safe. America is not a country of irreverence. It isn't. It's a country that plays safe. We have always been able to punch way above our weight because of the very ideas that would lead you to think about Blackadder or Monty Python. I mean, it's it's a force that is constantly being renewed, and and incredibly, despite the fact that in the UK itself, sixty billion dollars was spent by the PSBs collectively in the last decade to compare with that two hundred billion by those big American companies. But a lot of that is so fresh, it's so irreverent, it's so new. Whereas actually, you're seeing the Netflixes and so on just repeat, repeat, repeat. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. Fantastic points you make. I'm going to move on to a second question, which is from David Pemsel, who was the former CEO of The Guardian and now from Science Magic. Hello, this is uh, David Pemsel, co-founder and uh, chief executive of Science Magic Inc. I wanted to ask uh, almost Claire's motivations uh, through her career about how she's managed to 
sit in the middle of sort of strategic advice and being advising the industry on on sort of the way forward. But equally, she's also been incredibly provocative. You know, she's held organisations to account. She's retained a very independent view about what certain companies slash industries should be doing to transform faster. And I just wondered how she would define how she's managed to ably sit there as sort of strategic enabler, but at the same time has been probably one of the chief provokers of change and innovation in the industry. I'm incredibly grateful for that question because it's so nice. Um, I think that we all have the chance in the creative industries to be ourselves. And in this country, which is a great democracy, the greatest democracy, I believe, on this planet, we are more irreverent and more different and allow ourselves more differences than any other country that I know of. Um, I came here and have always felt comfortable because I was made an atheist, feminist, and pacifist. And this country has always made me feel welcome. I'm also a Scottish person now by choice. I am someone who chooses. I choose to be who I am. I choose the topics we cover. I choose my words with the chief executives that I advise often without any payment whatsoever. But why am I a peacemaker? Because I came to this country and it gives me the opportunity and the problems of the companies that I deal with give me the opportunity to be my best person. And, and, and that's all that I'm here to be, is my best person. Uh, those, those components of life, if you're an atheist, you live for today. If you're a pacifist, you live for peace. And, and if you're a feminist, you live for equality. And, and, and those, that's, that's my framework. Uh, that's where I'm advancing. But to David's point, that uh, do you ever find, uh, I suppose you might say, you're both the weather forecast and sometimes you actually make the wind because you have a very strong point of view? How does that sit with your position, or the Enders analysis position anyway, as a, as, a re, as a reporter, research analyst firm? How do you take those opinions when perhaps some of your market might expect you to steer straight down the middle? So I, this is, that's a very good question. I myself own 100% of my activity, and I am the advocate for my views and for the research uh, that we have done over 35 years that supports our views in support of public service broadcasting or in support of other major, major components of my life, such as child protection online. Um, the rest of my firm takes whatever views they want. They express them themselves. Our work does not have my view in anything. There's just endless research is not written by Claire Enders, uh, something that I often say to people just so that they're sure. That work is actually very dispassionate, very independent. Uh, my colleagues have different opinions from me. I, I am the person who is the advocate. Everyone else can do whatever they want in my company um, and have whatever views that they want. It is extraordinarily important to me for for chief executives to be prompted and provoked into fresh thinking and for them to believe, yes, to believe that equality and 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 a better carbon environment are important uh, and and I, I don't find people who disagree with that those views at all and 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 equally I don't find people who say yes let's waste capital so in general you know we always go through phases 
Um, but I think that the way we do it is, is that we have a very clear division. First of all, 90% of our income is generated by subscription. And the balance is, 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 is generated, for instance, for, because we're expert witnesses. Uh, for instance, we've just spent five years as the expert witnesses for the Inland Revenue Service in their case uh, against Facebook for tax evasion. And, and our work was brilliant. It created a shadow model of Facebook. It, it allowed the IRS some kind of idea of what Facebook was up to. We're incredibly proud of our work. Um, and, and we do very, very complex pieces like that. And that's it. We, we stay out of the consulting business, broadly speaking, because uh, some of our finest clients and longest standing clients are the McKinsey's of this world and the Accenture's and, and, and so on. And they, and they can do these, these very interesting things. So I, I would just say that what I am trying to do is I treat everyone the way I want to be treated, which is as a unique individual, yes, gifted, yes, provocative, yes, ornery, yes, sometimes excessive, um, sometimes too passionate, sometimes too engaged, sometimes sometimes way over the top. Um, but, well, that's but, all part of the package, I think, which people warm to and one of the reasons why you enjoy uh, the preeminent position you do, Claire. So no need to apologise. Now, you mentioned how um, you, your choice of, of living in the UK and indeed Scotland and comparing um, USA and the UK is the subject of our next and final question from the outside, which is from Stephen Woodford of the Advertising Association. Hi, Claire. Stephen Woodford here. Um, one of the many fascinating things about talking to you is your perspectives on the UK media scene and business scene. And I know there's much that you find admirable uh, about what we do, as much you find frustrating. And we've talked often about the wider political scene and social scene and the entrepreneurial spirit of Britain. So tell me, what do you find most admirable and what do you find most frustrating? And that's about the UK as a whole, not your beloved Scotland. Thanks. So I've found, um, especially in the last 10 years, I found that the new debates that um, arose around Brexit, uh, that this was something that was extraordinarily difficult to deal with because this was the first time that the UK was moving away from evidence-based decision-making into, into really ideology. And, and, and the UK I came to in 1982 was a flexible, commercial, innovative, extraordinarily um, interesting place but a place which which was really very very commercial very focused on uh, international trade international relations welcoming students from all over the world like me and 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 that all changed and 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 it was really interesting uh, to have lived for so long in this country and and to be instantly identified as an immigrant because of my accent and told to go back home in 2015 2016 and when i said i don't have a home this is my home uh, I was I was shocked that people somehow didn't realize that immigrants didn't have some place to go. That was the very nature of being an immigrant. So I think that's been the most frustrating thing. But other than that, I have to say I felt extraordinarily fortunate um, to be to be uh, in the UK and and to be so welcomed as someone who would otherwise find it extraordinarily difficult to fit in anywhere. That's how you've been welcomed. Um, what about? How Culturally, um, you you maintain that the UK is, uh, you mentioned the points, more irreverent, more creatively interesting and innovative, even than the the great Hollywood studios and machine on mm. the other side of the pond. Well, I think I think this is a very telling statistic. The creative ecology sustains four hundred thousand businesses in the UK. 
many of them very, very small, many of them uh, in in places like uh, the Orkneys or Scotland or the North or in, in Wales um, and, and, and elsewhere. So this is a completely different biddy ecology. And, and also we have huge numbers of freelancers. So, so we've got a very, very diverse creative ecology. And, and it's not dominated by a handful of companies. It's not actually scale-based. So we do have a few scale players in the UK. I mentioned Sky. Sky is a scale player. Uh, the BBC is a scale player, particularly globally in news. Uh, we have, after that, you know, you you really are starting to look at in art sectors, um, obviously at much much smaller companies, but they but they they're they're punching way above their weight, and 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 that's because of the of the really interesting nature. I mean, it's not it's not technology that has increased the uh, membership and subscriptions of The Guardian or the FT of The Telegraph. It's actually brilliant journalism and expertise in really mission-critical uh, items such as the financial markets or the pandemic or, or geopolitical shifts. Uh, the seriousness of the world helps the UK. Um, so I, I would say it's just a completely different palimpsest. It's a completely different um, ecology. It's one that's very driven by entrepreneurial spirit. And, it's very, and, and, and also I will say this extraordinary thing. I will say this. I know it's incredible. I am one of those micro companies. My company is one of the smallest companies in the UK, but I have never, ever been treated as anything but an equal by all of these titanic people, by Matt Britton, who's the head of Google Europe, by Stephen Van Ruen, who's running a $20 billion business. I have never, ever felt that I was being put down, run a, run a micro business. Whereas if you have any contacts with Americans, they always say, where do you work? Oh, I haven't heard of that. Oh, your name's on the company. You must be a consultancy PR mm. company, whatever. Oh, you must be so small. Oh, poor you. I'd like to get your opinion on something else. We just had three questions. And they're all from men. I did ask women to send in a question, but they didn't reply to me, whereas these three men all came back within about half a day. Why is that? And can you help me get more women on the podcast and indeed on platforms? Because men seem to be happier to shout and talk about what their successes are. And you're perhaps one of the women who does it more than some of the average senior women I've found. I think it helps that I I am an immigrant, so I'm not held back by whatever it is that's holding other people back, and and I don't know what that is, but I've I have a daughter who's almost 33, and I have a sense that people who grow up here um, are part do feel the patriarchy. They do feel that it's a very dominantly male thing. You look at Parliament, you look at companies. I mean, if you look at the real statistics. Um, it's been 25 years since there's been any budge in the pay gap. Women are used to being second-class citizens here. They're always paid less. And yes, there's been the uh, a nice initiative to get women on boards over the last 25 years. That's now at around 38% females on boards. That hasn't changed the pay gap at all. The real lives of women here, not the chief executives, not the golden skirts, the real lives of women here are pretty tough, and they got a lot tougher in the pandemic. So understanding what's right for all of those women is much more important to me. So every two years, we do a large-scale piece of work on female empowerment, on how females are advancing in various industries, why 
the pay gap persists, what could be done about it, and so on and so forth. And we look at all the companies and all the measurements. So we're always doing what I would call, I think we spend, my twin and I spend about 20% of our time doing pro bono work. It varies. Sometimes she's spending 100% of her time, uh, or, or I'm spending 100% of my time doing pro bono work. But these are the many, many issues that we're looking at that affect our society we're very concerned about. So I would say that female empowerment is going to stall. It's going to be very, very difficult. But if you look at the individual company level, in our sectors, you have many, many striving companies, the BBC, um, Sky, many companies have changed beyond uh, peradventure. I will suggest to you many very fine women who exemplify this, uh, and, and, and I'm sure that they will come on. This is a very long haul. Inequality is, is, is rising in our world, and because of these events, it will rise many, many, many fold. It will be very, very desperate. It's rising. We're not on a, a, at least on the right direction of travel in um, no. levelling the field. <clears throat> no, the geopolitical challenges have, have upended that, and, and, and we will see a, 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 as we have a massive increase. But in any case, we have seen rising inequality since 1980 as a whole, because the capital markets have spewed out capital to men, and those men had capital before. So women missed out on the great getting rich phase, which was also, by the way, the phase in which that capital was used to burn the planet. So 85% of all climate change since the beginning of climate change, which is around 10,000 years ago, has been caused by men. It's a daunting challenge to be a woman. Yes. Well, it goes with the patriarchy that most of the problems so far could be laid at, laid at the door of men. And I, I you know, I have to, as, as a man, I take that on the chin. Now, Claire, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. And I, I'm going to ask you that uh, question about your, your funny story in a minute. But um, you've been doing this for about 40 years, enders for 25. Uh, even by my sort of pokey maths, you must be in your 60s. Um, how long are you going to keep going? I'll tell you how I keep going. I do 14 hours of fitness a week and I try to meditate around four hours a week and I try not to drink at all and I and I eat practically nothing. I mean, I eat very little and and everything I eat, I enjoy and everything that I do, I enjoy. And I would say that if this, if I can keep up the exercise and I'm sure I can and I, if this joy continues, I, 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 have, I have no plan. And I have promised uh, members of the House of Lords who seem in tremendous shape for being rather elderly that I would actually keep going until I was 80. So I would definitely see through um, the next charter and, and, and so on. So yes, I'm planning to see the next BBC charter through. Um, so, so that'll take us in, well into the mid-30s, mid, mid yeah. And there's no plan at all, ever. I've never wished to sell uh, my activity. That would be inconceivable. Um, I own 100% of it. I will always own 100% of it. So you, you plan to keep going well into the 2030s and, and mm -hmm. be commenting on the next charter renewal. But you've got to remember that um, I'm, I'm expecting uh, all of my colleagues to step up to the plate over this period. I, in fact, am constantly instructing them. You know, they're constantly fanning out. The more we are, the more influence we're going to have. So I'll keep you know, doing my corner, they'll be doing theirs. Over time, we're going to see these great people in my company become the lead brands and, and, and the lead commentators, as indeed they are, as indeed they are already. Now, just before we finish, it's very traditional on our Dog and Bone podcast to lighten the mood a bit. And I always ask my guests to give us a little tale about your most 
embarrassing moment in business and uh, put that in context for us. What's your story, Claire? I've thought about this a lot. This is a difficult one, but I really came out with a blooper. So 17 years ago, I put a dinner on at the Natural History Museum with Sir David Attenborough with a whole group of business people, very senior business people. I wanted him to highlight his mission for the planet Earth, and I wanted him uh, to be able to... I wanted, I mean, obviously I wanted them to have contact with him, but I wanted them to have contact with the Natural History Museum and, and with this extraordinary person. Anyway, so I had invited James Murdoch, and, and there were around 30 people. Sir Charles Dunstan was there. Um, really amazing uh, people were there. Um, and then I'd invited a, a couple of financial clients um, uh, of my firm who I knew were very significant uh, donors uh, who would who would be very interested in what Sir David Attenborough had to say. And I'd also invited my twin sister. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the most extraordinarily bad thing happened. Um, this financial client walked up to my sister, embraced her. I was watching this with horror embraced her. She pulled back. He he continued to cling to her. And then he started to laugh at her and said, how come you don't know who I am? Why are you playing coy? He used those words. And he was like, why are you being coy? And Alice kept saying, we're in the same room. And he hasn't seen this. She's another one over there. (laughs) Why are you being coy? It was amazingly funny. So, I mean, it was, we were in the same room and someone was completely baffled by why my sister couldn't recognize him. So I can tell you the twin sister uh, embarrassments that Alice and I have endured. But that that is the the amazing one because we were actually both in the same room and at, I, when, I, when this happened. I take it this person knew you a lot better than he knew your sister. And so, one would have thought, and it was so funny, he had no idea. It was also that we actually look quite different, you yeah. know, and we are different. And it was the fa- fact that people was really striking. And I think you know this as a twin. People are just taking each other for granted. They're not really, it's all skin deep. And I think if you're a twin, you know it's not. You know that everybody's really, really different. In fact, the best book about twins is called Identically Different. I know how different people are because there's someone who is mistaken for me and I'm mistaken for her all the time. Interesting story to end. I hope that that hasn't been repeated and the, you, you and your sister's blushes have been spared. Claire Enders, thank you so much for being a guest on the Dog and Bone podcast. Thanks for joining us on the Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog. <laughs>